What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Cool Talks. I'm your host, Grady Cool, and with me I have my two lovely co-hosts. Drew and Jack. And on this show, we like to get the um, opinions and experiences of people from all walks of life in order to maybe learn a thing or two from them. This week, we have our lovely guest, Benjamin Mercer, who is a journalist and writer. And today, we're going to be hearing about some of his opinions about what got him into writing, his podcast, The Little Platoon, a book that he's been writing, and just kind of hear about politics in general. Stick around. So what do you enjoy about writing and politics, and how did these two somewhat different things come together for you? Uh, so writing is literally the only thing I've ever been any good at. So it was not so much a case of, this is something I enjoy, therefore I'm going to do it. It's very much a case of, I can't do anything else, so I'd better, <laughs> I better, I better find something I can do. That's um, fair enough. <laughs> it, combines with poli- or it combined with politics relatively early on, because... I have a relatively firm grounding and sense of what is right and what is wrong in life. And my first prime minister, obviously from a UK context, is Tony Blair. And I suppose from an American context, the first president I remember is Bill Clinton. And these were neither of them renowned for telling the truth very often. Um, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. (laughs) He did. And and he didn't (laughs) smoke. He didn't smoke marijuana, but he did maybe have a brownie once or twice. Um, yeah, yeah. It, like, this is this is not really the kind of world you you are naturally made for if you also think that people telling the truth matters. So going into politics with the writing was just sort of a natural thing. I very much dislike anyone who has power and abuses that power. And lying in power is a fantastic way of abusing that power. Politi- and it's not. J- I, I mentioned Blair and Clinton. I could also mention politicians from other political parties if it wants to be a non-partisan show um generally <laughs> speaking they're all shysters and yeah to, to be able to say that say it well my, my earliest idols my early my earliest role models if we have to use that term were the kind of people who would say it as it is and not not take any prisoners no matter who they were talking about no matter what political party they came from they saw people in power misusing that power and they told the truth about that power truth is uh truth is the most radical thing there is as lenin i think said not the he knew very much about truth himself. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Irony is always fun. I feel Irony's like that's fun. a very good uh, place to come from for wanting to like write, to wanting to be able to constantly writing. tell the truth. I mean, like, I feel like that. that's usually where I feel like I have read a lot of the best material. Yeah, I mean, you think like people like George Orwell, and he would be my sort of first inspiration. But then, um, and Christopher Hitchens more recently. Um, and his brother actually is, is also very good at this, and yeah, and Alexander Coburn as well used to be of the Nation. There, there are all kinds of people, and they, again, they they make their name, and they are they stand out precisely because they have, as George Orwell put it, this power of facing unpleasant facts and calling things by their proper name. Both of which are incredibly important, and it's also two things that modern journalism does not do very well at all. So, um, it's well, partly it satisfies my sort of. Um, well, I, I could mention BuzzFeed, I could mention the New York Times, I could mention the Guardian. Um, I could go on and on and on, the Independent. Um, they're not exactly covering themselves in glory at the moment. And um, yeah, so it, it also suits my masochistic trend. I can say that I am a self-hating, self-loathing journalist, because um, I really hate my profession. I know too many journalists to like journalists, I think. So, so what does that mean? <laughs> well, with honourable exceptions, and there are some honourable exceptions, but they are the exceptions. Most journalists you meet are incredibly, almost psychopathically self-obsessed and career-oriented. So I went to do, I studied at one of the, the better 
schools in England for journalism. It calls itself the Oxbridge of journalism, Oxbridge from Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, it's neither of those places, but it trades off their name, um, City University. And, and it, it markets itself as the place to go, the place to be if you want to be a journalist. It sent people off to the BBC, it sends people off to the Guardian, to the Telegraph, all the rest of it. And that's where you meet journalists who are sort of up and coming. This is where you go to be inducted into the ways of the, uh, the fourth pillar, as I think it's called. And with almost no exceptions at all, every single person there was horrible and not actually committed to doing anything like what I thought journalism should be doing. So it wasn't a case of you're going to find out what the truth is and you're going to tell that to power whether power likes it or not. It was very much just what can I do to make my career advance as quickly as possible? And who can I make friends with who will help me in that ambition, in that desire? Who can fast forward me through the, uh, the rungs of journalism? I don't think making friends with people in power is necessarily the job of a journalist. As someone once said, the proper relationship between a journalist and a politician is that between a dog and a lamppost, i.e. you're just supposed to urinate on them from outside the town. <laughs> um, that's, that's what I saw the role as being, and nobody, nobody I met there thought the same thing, which made for some really fun group sessions. <laughs> I, I definitely could. Uh, from an outside point of view, it definitely seems like a lot of... I kind of see parallels there between like journalism and politics and themselves where it's like instead of constantly trying to do the right thing or put out something that's honest there's a lot of how can i get myself forward and a lot of those things don't tend to come down to truth is more kind of ass kissing or putting out the thing that's going to inspire clicks or buys or whatever it might be money, uh, money, right? <laughs> is yeah, that I mean, kind of similar to what you were trying to say pretty much yeah i mean if you take it from an american context I don't think it's a good thing when you can look at Fox and say, I already know what their line is going to be on this story. Mm. Or you can, you can look at the New York Times, which pretends to be, and it's worse with the Times than it's worth with CNN, because they at least pretend to be objective journalistic outlets. But when you can look at them and you can say, I already know what your reporter is going to say about this. I already know what the facts you present are going to be. And I already know the facts that you're not going to put into this story. I don't think that's good for... I mean, American journalism is actually is in a worse state than biased. UK journalism. It's, it's a broken system. It really is profoundly broken, and it's not a good thing. Because you have... Again, Fox, you know what you're going to get with Fox. Fox, American uh, TV journalism operates like the British tabloid press. You know where they stand. They advertise it. But it's when you get organizations like CNN, like um, ABC, New York Times, Washington Journal... Um, which pretend at least to be objective media outlets, i.e. not tabloid. They're not supposed to take a partisan line. It's when it infects those organizations, then you lose this sort of this, this grounding. You, you don't have a port of call for any American to go to and say, I trust this place just to give me the facts without opinion. Oh, yeah, and that, and that yeah. turns people off. It, it's part of the reason... <laughs> but we, yeah. that's one of the reasons we have it in this country too I mean the, the uh, decline in trust in the BBC for instance is just utterly remarkable um, it, it's trust pilot rating is this on the floor um, because it is perceived by people on both sides as being entirely biased entirely with its own opinion it has its own value set and it shouldn't have these things and this means of course that you don't have a common reference point anymore you can't say that people in, it's, you can't say that people in Alabama are now going to be turning to the same newspaper the same news channel as people in New York to get their facts because they don't trust these people these people for good reason so they turn to they turn to alternative media they turn to usually opinion led media and then you get this bifurcation in the American body politic where nobody agrees on what the facts are but everyone agrees that the other person's facts are wrong yeah uh, I'd say one problem we definitely have in America too is uh, a lot of the so 
when people look for unbiased media, they tend to try to look for smaller media companies because you would assume, okay, well, they're smaller, they're less likely to be just part of a giant machine. But in reality, a lot of them are still owned by the same, like, company. So I have one distinct memory of this compilation, and it's basically small local news channels, like it was 100 or 200, and they played a clip, and it was verbatim every single one of these news channels was saying the exact same thing with the exact same cadence. Reading on the same everywhere. script, yeah. Yeah, and then you get the same talking heads who do the rounds on them as well. So you'll, you know, one person will appear in the morning on X channel, and then in the afternoon they'll appear on the, the, the other channel owned by the same corporate owner. And they just do them. Adam Schiff was really good at this during the... Um, during the, the whole Trump-Russia thing. Adam Schiff would be never off the airwaves, always on a different channel. I think he just set his own tent up outside the, uh, the offices. Of <laughs> but, um, but they know who to go to to get the opinions. And then it's this horrible, this really horrible way in which power has almost inverted. So now, you know, it started in the 1990s. It's true now as well. You get the White House in particular will have a, a huge amount of say over who goes on to news channels because they'll say to abc for instance if you run a story which is critical of this administration then you won't get the interview with the secretary of state in two weeks time that you thought you'd we'd go to your we'll go to your rival for that instead um so it's it's partly self-interest it's largely self-interest it's almost entirely self-interest that that makes this happen but it comes from different angles so that there's this sort of the bottom-up shystness of uh the low moral character, shall we say, of individual journalists, but it's also the top-down imposition of, of political lines from the White House and the cravenness of media organizations, which are solely in it to get clickbait these days. Yeah. Um, and not you had mentioned self-loathing among also loathing other journalists and other kind of news conglomerates. Do you hold yourself to those standards of truth and honesty while trying to write, or do you find yourself trying to also climb a little bit or kind of a little bit of both i try as best as i can I, th I think you know it's important to recognize whenever you're writing anything that you are going to have a slant on this you will come in with a received opinion the important thing to do is to try and minimize the effects of that received opinion and to test it against people with whom you disagree so this, this is why it's really irritating when you see Amer like news channels in any well the united states or the united kingdom which only ever interview the same sets of people because they are only hearing the same usually quite establishment thoughts put back to them they're not actually testing their own received opinion their own preconceptions they're just having them confirmed to them but i i really i mean i'm i don't have many addictions whiskey is one nicotine is another one and arguing with people is the third and probably the biggest of them the i of absolutely them <laughs> love it um i can't get enough of it so almost by definition, because I love arguing with people, I do spend a lot of time going out and finding people who believe very different things to me. And that's a very good way of testing your own biases. And if my biases survive these encounters, then I think perhaps there's some truth to them. And if they don't survive these encounters, then I have to ask why that is. And if I don't change them or if I don't improve them, then I'll lose the next argument. So there are checks and balances in play. And I do try my best to... Uh, I'm not politically neutral, but I try my best not to let a... I'm not party affiliated so i'm not taking a party line i never would take a party line i will hate on all politicians equally because i think they're all words i can't really say um <laughs> family friendly podcast thank family you. friendly podcast um, <laughs> with our uh non-traditional family e episodical uh, swearing but usually we avoid uh getting too deep into things okay. anyway um uh, words that rhyme with fudge fudges um yeah. yeah they're just not they're not good people so i don't take a party line and that helps um because and on, on the podcast we do you know usually you'll find people who comment on any 
of British politics, and they were like, you can tell from what they're saying, they either vote Conservative or they vote for the Labour Party. And I like to think we don't do that because we hate both of these parties, so we will happily run episodes um, dropping excrement on all of them. So that probably leads fairly easily into uh, what is the little platoon about? Um, you just mentioned that podcast, and I figured maybe we could get a little bit more detail this before you start entire... talking about it uh, outwardly. This is I the guess. thing. This is the thing about which I'm completely biased, of course. Um, this is, <laughs> it's the best thing in the world. No, as we started, well, we we first took a run at it in the beginning of our first lockdown, so sort of April 2020, and we we sort of let it drop after that. We only went for about a month. We didn't really have an idea of what we wanted to do with it. But we've started it again uh, about a month and a half ago now with a much clearer idea of what we want to do. So the idea is to, it, it's an, an attempt to answer the problems that I've laid out above, which is, okay, and as you've identified yourself, in the, the decline in trust in mainstream media organizations, for instance, makes people turn to alternative media. A lot of people get their news and their commentary now from YouTube, from even from TikTok, God. But, <laughs> yeah, um, they do. I mean, you can tell as well in the way that they go on to vote. But uh, what we wanted to do was because, I mean, there's two of us who run the channel and we both have a relative, we have an odd academic background, but our interests have always been tied to politics and tied to culture. Andrew Breitbart said politics is downstream from culture. So what we wanted to do was combine those two things. So we do a daily um, show, which sort of is was like two to three segments, which will take major stories from... Uh, the UK and the US principally. And we will say what those stories are, but we'll also attempt to explain what's behind them, what the history is, and perhaps some of the things that the stories are missing. So when, uh, as I mentioned, journalists tend to bring in their own facts to things and don't bother necessarily to consider the others, um, we will try and say, okay, to critique the facts that they have presented with you and the narrative that's being presented in the story. And does the story or do the facts support that story? So we attempt to do those. They're usually relatively short between sort of 15 minutes to half an hour each segment. There's three of those every day. And then the other part is the cultural uh, product, which is we do a lot of film reviews, cultural essays and things which tend to go out on the weekends. Um, but combining those two things combines the loves of the two of us who run this channel. Um, and it's it's been great fun. We, we started off with about 20 subscribers and we've got a couple of hundred, 220, I think it is now in about a month, which is, isn't too bad. Tapped into a deep well of hatred with a star trek discovery as it turns out that really is a good way to get people going people love to hate <laughs> yeah i will agree with a mild hatred of star trek discovery good good <laughs> that that you that means you are not an irredeemable person so that's that's a good start <laughs> that the uh baseline requirement there's a few things where you think if somebody likes this thing then the odds of us getting on are small but um there's not too many of those, but Star Trek Discovery, which is like the most preachy show ever to have been dreamt up in the in the minds of particular corridors in California, uh, is is. You gotta draw oh, a line somewhere. Yeah. You do. Somewhere. I draw my line there. But um, yeah. So so we do that as well. But the, the main podcast is sort of more yeah more current affairs, politics, U.S. and U.K. Um, we try and keep the Americans on board as well, and uh, gotcha. yeah, then we do weekends for the cultural stuff. Got it. Um... One, I feel like a lot of people started podcasts when the pandemic dropped. That was definitely yes. uh, where it's like, band, you know? there's a lot of the, like YouTube channels. People started a whole lot of stuff when kind of March 2020 hit. Um, what for you guys do you think is a reason for you to stand out among, you know, millions of other podcasts? Uh, the accents. Um, that's, that's a place to start. Uh, that, that's a facetious answer. Um, being, yeah, being posh and British has, a, has certain advantages. Um, I think 
trying to uh, well a having a, a breadth of knowledge which we can bring into this we don't have to do too much um work to get abreast of any particular story no matter what that story is because we're both voracious readers of news and politics and the philosophy that undergirds that um the philosophy that undergirds that would be another um another unique thing i think i mean i i'm i'm keen and especially on political history so i can bring the context of any story that happens to drop in front of me every five minutes um to bear on that <laughs> there's um it's it's just mostly though at the beginning at least we we haven't really worried too much about this we've sort of had this tacit confidence that what we say has some merit and some worth we know what we're talking about and we can say it relatively well and the important thing is that we are enjoying doing it and we're learning how to do it better so as we move on then you get to the point of finding perhaps a more unique selling point but i think that the synthesis of politics and culture and the ability to deliver everything with my sort of 50 fags in voice every day which is, is uh, it has its it has its merits yeah, so it sounds like it sounds like a good place to start because I mean if you're if you create your podcast or whatever with your intention get really huge, get really rich, make a huge difference, you're probably not going to get anywhere. I will say that me personally I think that some of the YouTube videos that I watch the most, I mean you have these like 45 hour long minute videos where it's someone just having deep analysis of a subject where it's super niche but their level of knowledge <laughs> to just talk straight off the cuff is yeah. fantastic and i mean that's some of my favorite content out there where it's scuffed but man they know exactly what they're talking about yeah, the oh, content definitely. is up here the production is yeah i i definitely have when i've made videos of that nature it's also felt like man oh man i feel like a god <laughs> i mean the, the production is that's been the the thing that we've been really trying to work on because obviously it's one thing i think the first one we did it was just my iphone and then we recorded some stuff and I just stuck pictures over it on Movie Maker like on the train on the way home, <laughs> which is obviously not tenable long term. So like put, put the investment in, got the microphones, got the good laptop, learned OBS, learned Premiere Pro. So all of the, the film reviews are, are proper sort of video essays rather than they're not just voice to microphone and then static images. So trying to and injecting humor into them as well, which which is very important, I think, for any long form content It's one thing to be able to lecture at someone. It's another thing to have them want to be lectured at by you. Mm. And um, right. if you can inject any kind of humor into that, that, that really helps. Keep interesting visuals on screen. We've had artwork commissioned for the main podcast, so like we, we don't appear on camera, but we have moving avatars, etc. Um, fairly consistent layout now we've striven to achieve. So, yeah, production, bringing production values off the floor was a pretty big part of, uh, of starting. Yeah, when we definitely. first started our first episodes with... Uh... This one guy, and it was a Zoom call where we were on laptops without special mics. Uh, he was just on his phone walking around his backyard talking. Yep. <laughs> I've seen a few podcasts like that. I mean, sometimes, sometimes that really naturalistic thing works. I, I know a couple of, of other YouTubers. One of them he just walks around the English countryside with his phone up to his camera, and he's in his, like, 50s. So he look, it's, it's peak boomerism, basically. He's just... <laughs> but... It kind of works because he's interesting and he has a relatively fun voice and and he's kind of entertaining and that that kind of works. Would honestly help. The scene yeah. very yeah. much does help. I think that's what most people watch it for, to be honest. But uh... it's <laughs> definitely like that beats blank about. wall by a mile. At least when you're moving, like there's something to like pay attention to. Yeah, we we tried that when we first started 
in when it was 2020 and um because i did i did have an old sort of camera which i connected to the computer but the problem is it was like a pure white ball backdrop and it just looked like a hostage video I put a black flag behind me and i would have been the latest al-qaeda training commercial um please subscribe they won't let me go home please <laughs> one like equals one time i get to talk to my family jeez in which case please don't like because i've had too much, <laughs> too much of them over the last it's two weeks dramatic. holidays Oh God! Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> so, uh, just to touch on uh, what you said earlier in your little platoon podcast channel, is that is that that's what you call the channel overall as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So the whole thing is the little platoon on Spotify. It's the little platoon podcast. I think, and on Apple Podcasts, okay, so you're, but... you're a multimedia enterprise. You uh, you keep yeah, praise, you keep your audience praised to both British and American politics. So. Yes. What what is the intention behind that? Because I mean, I feel like it's not the biggest leap in the world to assume that you are in fact British based on your voice. So, what's <laughs> the what's tell? the intention behind the uh, uh, focus on U.S. politics as well? Um, America is not really a country. America is a planet, and America has its own center of gravity. <laughs> the best planet in the world. It is the best planet in the world. Um, Someone once said that the reason everyone pays attention to American politics is because everyone secretly wants to vote in an American election. Um, I think that that's Not kind of true here. I, I at least want to be able to write none of the above on a ballot paper in an American election. Mm. Um, uh, but America has its own center of gravity. America is the thing around which the world revolves. You can't and you shouldn't ignore what happens in America, especially since you know in the United Kingdom we lend some things to America culturally, um, but we borrow a huge amount more. And America's cultural hegemony, America's financial hegemony means that the, the, you really can't understand what happens in British politics unless you understand what happens in American politics. And you really can't understand what happens to the global economy unless you understand what's happening at the Federal Reserve, for instance. Um, so it, it just seemed natural. I want to move there at some point in my life. I want to live there. I've always wanted to do this. this it, I, I love America. I think it's a fantastic place being serially disgraced by its leaders. Um, <laughs> but... It, yeah, it, it helps understand the rest of the world, if you understand America, and also to be able to bring in the perspective from of the rest of the world to America is something that I think, no, with no disrespect to present company, of course, Americans could perhaps do with a bit more often. Um, <laughs> Having some more education out there definitely never hurts. <laughs> There's, especially France with the mass spread of... Not the country in the of, Middle East, for instance. Yeah. Especially with the amount of uh, mass spread of misinformation these days is so... Yeah. There's Wild. a good amount of people that also just kind of bury their heads in the sand and don't want to hear any of it. Which, I mean, is understandable with the amount of it that, I mean, just as you were saying, it's like, it's not in the search of truth, but it's more of just like, how can I get promoted? There's a lot of, how oh. I personally benefit by doing this? There's a lot of hatefulness out there, I guess, as part of it. And then people are like, la, 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 I cannot hear it, and then head in the sand. There is, but also, you know, if you're going to bomb a country, you probably ought to do it the courtesy of knowing where it is, for instance. That's, that's a good Yeah, point. that um, would definitely just, be oh, good. So, I so the bombs are so smart these days, they fly themselves. If you, had, if you <laughs> ask, <laughs> like, a hundred different Americans, like, what the Middle East, like, draw the countries and tell me, like, which one is where, I can assure you that, like, maybe one out of a hundred might know. If you ask them one continent, maybe. On, they won't be able to tell you. Fair enough. <laughs> To be yeah. fair, it's a, it's a little bit tricky. It's kind of right in the middle. It's, 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 it's an ambition. It's Asia. It's Asia. Yeah, it's right. But also, the, the other one part, being like, if you want to understand in America where a lot of the worse ideas from your universities are coming from, for instance, 
then knowing a little bit about France helps, because as David Stark, the British historian, says, all the worst ideas in the world are French. And a lot of what happens at American campuses these days comes from the French. Um, so I'm, allowed to, I'm allowed to say this. That I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am moreover, I'm English, and so I'm allowed to say these things about the French because they're true. Um, so I love France. I've been to France. It's just, it's just their ideas are terrible, and, and the way they run their country is bad, and they're responsible for all the bad things in the world. But... Um, Above, above even Germany. Goodness Germany gracious. Least British commentator. <laughs> <right here. laughs> but no, no, there's a serious point underlying that, obviously, which is that no, there is truth to that. A lot of American social justice movements, for instance, derive from French social philosophy. Um, Jack Derrida, for instance, Michel Foucault. Um, so it's part of you know, America is, is the descendant. It, it is the so it's the child who's now come good. It's the child who's become head of the household, but still owes certain of their behaviors, thoughts, preferences, beliefs to ancestral same. Oh, um, so under understanding history, understanding European history is also understanding American history and understanding what you were trying to get away from in the first place. Um, and I, I completely envy the people who did manage to escape Europe to get to found America and found it much better than do a better job of that than we did. Um, so but well, that yeah, it's my was... question on uh, your opinion on Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I, I'm yeah, I'm all for getting away from getting away from it. No, I, I love Europe. My mum is a is a classical singer, um, and she does concerts all over Europe. And I've been lucky enough to travel all over Europe, and I've been I, it's, I'm immensely fortunate to have done so. I love European history. I love European culture. I don't like French ideas, but I like French wine. Um, <laughs> Europe has much going for it. I love Europe. I really, really do not like the European Union. You would not accept this in the United States. And I think people, if they understood what the European Union really is, what it was about, would not accept it either. Um, there was this, this canard in the Brexit debate in this country that Brexit voters didn't know what they were voting for. But the only people who ever said that were people who voted for Remain. And I can well believe that they didn't know what they were voting for because they demonstrated it every time they opened their mouths on the subject. Um, it's in part to, to remember what was good about Europe that I thought we should come out of the European Union. We're not doing a very good job of it, but I'm glad we did. I feel like that, bouncing off of that, this is kind of a little bit of a side tangent. Do you have anything left to touch on on Brexit? No. All right. Um, I don't know enough about the fine details. I just watched some British TV. Gotcha. Um, I feel like one thing that you hear people say around um, correcting, like, it's a lot easier from the outside being able to say, oh, this is broken, this is broken, all of these have problems than it is to like come out and try and have any sort of solution for some of these things. I mean, I feel like the perfect example of that is I've watched every season of South Park out there and they make fun of everybody. I absolutely love it. And there is like a certain amount of truth in, well, if we just hate on everybody, you know, there's no biases there. Everybody's going to get some. But then there's the question of like, it's a whole lot easier to point out a whole lot of problems than trying to come up with some solutions do you think within writing and journalism that there is some of that space for trying to create some of those solutions? Or do you think that some of the purpose in that is to just point out some of these problems so that other people can come in and maybe build some solutions now that they know what to work on? I see the point, and it's a good question. I think the answer, though, is that I, I'd have to break the grammar of the question a little bit. I don't. I think the problem is that there are too many solutions. That that's where all of our problems come from. This idea that there is a solution to everything and that everything can be managed and should be managed, and the only problems we have are because people aren't managing it correctly. I think misses the point. The problem is that we're trying to manage way too much at the moment, anyway. 
The idea that government should be able to step in and fix all of the things government is currently doing wrong overlooks the fact that government is only doing things wrong because it tried to fix them in the first place. There's a huge number of areas in society where we need to re revert to ordinary people, neighbours, citizens, subjects of the crown, whoever, whatever categorization you want to choose, social activists, social organisations, community organisations, whatever, just on the private sphere, say, no, we cannot wait for someone else to come up with a solution. We cannot wait for the government to come up with a solution. The government is the reason we are in this mess. And perhaps it's time that we stepped up and did something about it ourselves. And maybe ask the question, you know, what went wrong to make it this way? And how can we put that right? Rather than what went wrong to make it this way and how can someone else put that right for us? So as a journalist in, in, in my writing, um, I, I mean, yeah, where there are solutions to be offered, I will try and offer those solutions. And, and one of those solutions can be to say, maybe get the government out of certain areas where it should not be, has never historically been, and is messing up terribly now. Um, in other areas, there are things that government absolutely can and should do, and you can point those out when and where they arrive. But I think generally the focus on solutions is part of the problem and not, ironically, the solution itself. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm sitting here like just taking it all in for a moment, but I, I definitely understand the putting. There's a certain reaction out of people to want to take all their problems to some bigger authority, meaning whether that's their supervisor, their parents, their church, their government, and go, "Hey, you fix this. I don't know how to. You fix it." Not my problem. Instead of fixing it themselves by building these organizations or building these kind of like free get-togethers to try and fix things, or even using things like the internet to try and fix stuff and. I feel like there is a certain amount to be said about if there are all these problems with the country, trying to put them on one massive organization, the government, to be able to fix everything instead of just, hey, well, we're going to fail if 30% of our people just want to break everything and get free rides. And I, in whatever this, form this that takes. Productive but... stuff. One of the best examples I can think of, Thomas Sowell is very good on, this, on these points, but one of the ones that always sticks in my mind is this, around the 1950s, I think it was in America, um, there was a, a big moral panic about sexual health in schools and worries about teenage pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, diseases, and all the rest of it. So they instituted a sex education campaign, and the specific goals were to lower teenage pregnancies, lower sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea. And five years later, those things had gone through the roof. They'd actually been in decline before the policy came in. The policy came in, and the whole thing reversed, and it got worse again. Um, there are some areas where you can just look at these things and say... look. Just, the facts are right in front of you. The, the figures are right there. We have the, the big problem we have in this country is the health service, the National Health Service, which is, Nigel Lawson, our old chancellor, said it's the closest thing the British have to a religion. And they are right. And you still hear, you hear some people in America say that the great, greatest thing about Britain is its National Health Service. We say that about ourselves all the time. Um, we say it's the envy of the world. And admit the fact that no one else in the world has tried to copy it, which I think is suspicious. We spend 45% of all government spending goes on the, the National Health Service. And every year we are told it is collapsing and it's in crisis, and it needs even more money to do the work it has been doing for decades, or hasn't rather been doing for decades, that's the problem. Because it also scores below every comparable health system in the world in terms of health outcomes and preventable deaths, which I thought was the point of a health service to begin with. But this is again, the, the answer we have to this is more government solution, more government money. That This will fix the problem. But just by every conceivable metric, it's getting worse and worse every year. So maybe, maybe there is a solution that does not require a government solution to this problem. Uh, maybe actually that 
mentality, that idea of a solution is just going to continue making the thing worse. And it's an unpopular thing to say in this country. It's the closest thing that you can say you can get to blasphemy in a country which has no blasphemy laws. You will be excommunicated from polite society if you dare criticize the NHS. Um, but I think polite society is far too polite, so I'm, I'm quite happy to carry on doing that. What does a... Uh... I guess the one last question that always comes down is this argument kind of trickles down is what does a citizen do if they're in a country where the government isn't in a huge role, but they find themselves in a country where their fellow citizens are also failing them and the country starts falling apart? Is it on that person to try and do better in the community or to try and just leave or depends on the situation or I feel like that's what that ends up coming so down to. asking for advice if you should move to Canada. That, <laughs> I don't like think I'd really be sure. The answer to that question, by the way, is just no, very quickly. Um, you should not, not be moving to Canada. Um, unless you want to live under Justin Trudeau. And if you do, then I, uh, there are pills available. Um, and you should consider those first. But um, no, in answer to Jeez. that question, um, I mean, it's, it's a good question, but you tend to find that these things operate. It is almost a zero-sum game. If your own people, if your own society is failing you, this does tend to be because society has already given itself up too much, too much of its role to government organizations and institutions. This doesn't just happen in one isolated instance. This happens over and over again, almost everywhere it, it's tried. And if, if you read Alexis de Tocqueville's Reflections on the Revolution in France, um, he's a really fascinating read because you can glean a lot about modern the state of modern society from reading the Tocqueville's reflections on pre-revolutionary France, because he explains how, in fact, all the work of the revolution was done before the revolutionaries even were born, because the state had expanded to encompass every single aspect of people's lives. You can still find letters written by tiny little people in tiny little villages to the central government, asking the central government to step in and settle a dispute over who owned what pig or what sheep. Um, and as a result of this, there was no familial tie, no neighborly tie. There was no society left. So when a revolutionary faction in the Montanards takes power in central government, there's no, there's no resistance to their revolution anymore because there's nothing to resist them. Their job has already been done. And I think you can find worrying analogies. I'm not saying America is in a pre-revolutionary state like the French were or that the United Kingdom is. But you do see the same patterns emerging. And they're unfortunate patterns. And that's, that is that if you really want to have a functioning society you really should be looking at what government is doing now that it should not be doing and whether you should be asking the question maybe is is it the case that a lot of the decline we're seeing in our in our society around us is not a response to too little government but is in fact the direct response to too much government are we being absolved of all our responsibilities to each other by an overweening state which we've all backed and as a result have lost all ties with each other and that that's a question i think that must be asked given that we are in an unprecedented period of, of government growth and government spending and it is involved in ever more aspects of our lives and the regulatory book grows and grows and grows and grows and grows it, it, i think the question has to be asked now and if we don't ask it now it might be too late to ask it so i'm going to carry on asking it now so tax evasion is the is the name of the game then <laughs> um, we are, I think, legally not allowed to endorse tax evasion, but I hear that. <laughs> no, I don't, endo don't, don't endorse. Fired. Do not endorse tax. Cool and its affiliates do not endorse the uh, <laughs> illegal practice of evading your taxes. Don't do le don't do illegal tax evasion. That's not the way to go. There's <laughs> too many not. legal ways to get away with not paying taxes to be doing it illegally. I want my well, job to pay me like I'm in California, but tax me like I'm in Wyoming. I mean, you could do what many people in California are doing and move to Texas. That would be a start. Um, 
But I, well, otherwise, I could point out that in in like much of southern Europe, in France, not no, not France, with Spain and Italy, in particular, in Greece, where they've always lived under incredibly large governments, which are incredibly incompetent, they see it as a moral obligation to ignore as much of the government as they need to to reduce the government de facto in size to where they think it should be, which is why Greeks don't pay taxes and the Spanish put scaffolding on their rooftops. And then claim that it's a new build, which is tax exempt, and they just leave the scaffolding there for eternity. <laughs> it's a really, really clever way of, of doing it. And it's perfectly legal. It's a legal way of doing it. It's not tax evasion at all. It's just uh, messing with the system. Engineering. Yeah. No, it's like it's tax dodging. <laughs> it's, it's being economical with the law. Yeah. System say, set up to be broken. I, don't know. I haven't met a single person who studied like business in college who doesn't advocate some form of tax evasion. It's set up to be broken. Like, I don't know what you don't want me to player, tell you. Hate the, game. the fact that the people who pay the most are at, like, around that 10% mark, where it's like, you, you make hundreds of thousands of dollars, but you don't have enough money to afford an accountant who knows how to break all the rules. You just kind of pay that 40 or 50% tax. And then there's the guys who are a little bit further than that that have the accountant, and they don't pay, like, crap in taxes. Yeah. It's yeah, weird. You also That's wonder why why the rich in America have seem to have way too much power. It's because you're relying on one percent of your population to fund almost a third of all your income tax. And then you ask why they have so much power. Well, because if they leave, then you're screwed. So yeah. of course right. you're going to be well, nice to them. We're going to go down whole so ass rabbit hole here. Until I get there, so. Don't don't uh, get me started on uh, corporations <laughs> and income inequality. Corporations are That's a conversation for a different day. <laughs> I'm a hold back on that one. Okay, so on to something different. <laughs> so, what is contemporary ethics, and why did you get a degree in it? And kind of how does that money? relate to the rest of your interests? Uh, well, um, so beginning with what it is, uh, contemporary ethics is sort of like an offshoot of philosophy, um, and it's specifically because it was a master's degree, so it's a bit more focused. The idea was to try and apply classical ethical theories and also modern ethical theories um, to contemporary problems, and it, it marries with my other interests because of course so many of our contemporary problems, as we've just discussed, our political problems, for instance. Um, but you know, contemporary issues, abortion, big in America at the moment. Um, uh, you, you could even include taxation as a, as a contemporary ethical issue if you want to. Are people ethically allowed or even obliged to not pay taxes they think are unjust? Are you obliged ethically, morally to pay tax uh, to fund a war that you don't think is right? Um, these, these are all contemporary ethical issues. Uh, the Masters was building on a, an undergraduate degree in, in a broader philosophy, religion and ethics. Um, so uh, having the, the slightly broader grounding there as well. But it, it applies everyone from Aristotle, Kant, Plato, uh, Iris Murdoch, uh, even even Oscar Wilde comes in occasionally um, to to yeah very very pressing modern issues and some less pressing modern issues but that was the choice of my lecturers um, but no it, it fits in it was a, it was a very heavily written based degree and of course it gives me a chance to write essays on things that I, I already know about or want to know about anyway and it it just seemed to fit and it was um. It was quite easy as well, which gave me a lot of time to do other things that I much prefer doing, like writing for my university newspaper. Nice. Actually, yeah, no, okay, come on. That, uh, that was a succinct yeah. answer. Um, yeah. Other than <laughs> writing and enabling you to do your writing better, is there like a... How do you delicately ask what the job market for contemporary ethicists is? <laughs> yeah. uh, the the equally concise answer to that is I then went on to do another master's in journalism. So, um, <laughs> Makes so, sense. Yeah, from which you might infer. Um, journalism is better than it? 
Do you feel like, do you feel like well, it still adds value today for you when you're writing, whether that be in journalism or trying to write a book? Definitely, definitely. And th this is sort of the shame. I, I consciously keep trying to expand this to big topics, but um, it's kind of the shame with, with a lot of education is that it has become so market oriented and it is so industry focused. The, the idea has become that in liberal arts, your job is to do something which will get you a job. And it's not to do something which was the traditional view of education, which is to broaden the mind and to teach you to be fundamentally a better human. And then you can apply those skills to any number of jobs you happen to go and train for. But it's become, it's become, human <laughs> yeah, I mean, lots of people do, there's, there's, there's plenty of opportunity. I became, I was an absolute shit in college, but I enjoyed it very much. Um, so, so the, there is, there is that aspect. And this was actually, it was a, it weirdly, it was a much more classical style of education precisely because it was not immediately geared toward any particular career path. And people from my university, it was a tiny university. It was a specialist university of the university of London, which is now closed because it, employed priests to do its finances rather than finance people and that was not a good idea apparently if you pray for money then then money does not tend to come um but, for taxes either. <laughs> but it's given the world uh, one of the current heads of mi6 the british security services sebastian gorka uh, donald trump's former uh, advisor was an alumni of my college um and a few other people who i'm sure are notable for something or other um I'm not saying that these are necessarily good people, incidentally, um, but I mean, it's difficult to be entertaining. But, um, so, but it leads itself to lots of other things. A lot of people I was in my classes went into government and into administration, into the civil service. Um, a lot of them go into teaching, which is sort of the cliche thing you do if you study philosophy. Um, and I decided, yeah, I, ethics and journalism don't famously go together, so I'd, I'd try and marry those two things. I think that actually makes a ton of sense when you're into the pursuit of truth. That yeah. like that's a big uh, the way you pursue it too has to be important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not like you know journalists, you know, like doctors, they have to take their oath about not doing harm. Journalists, uh, they don't have to do anything like that. Journalists, do, if you don't do harm, you're not doing your job. I think. With oh, exactly. Yeah. Um. So we hadn't we haven't gotten into this part yet, but you. You're currently trying to – you've either finished writing the book or are currently kind of in the very end process of it. It sounded like you were trying to get published with that. Um, first, what is this book about? And two, are you currently trying to get published or have you kind of given up on trying to get published for now? Uh, the second one's quicker. I'll kick off with that. I mean, I, actually, it's being edited at the moment by um, – well, at least in theory. It was supposed to have been edited by the end of November and there has been a delay. Um, so hopefully by the end of January I will have it corrected and looked over and someone to tell me whether or not it's any good after that there will be a decision as to whether I, I take it forward and try and get it published my hope is that yes um i'll certainly have a look into that i'll be sending it around to a few people i know a couple of authors anyway um who might be able to give some tips or, or a way in so that's the the slightly grubby journalistic practice of making <laughs> friends who are contacts as well but you know if you have them you should make use of them yeah, um it, Sounds like it can go a little bit better if you can get published by a company. We've we've uh, interviewed a few like uh, self authors who have like self published, and it sounds like a lot of self advertising there. But yeah, and often you have to pay for that privilege as well. And my ideal right. is to get paid for my work um, rather than pay to do it. That's um, so I mean, self publishing is I, I'd look into. It. I think if it, if it fails to publish, is yeah, I, I don't don't think it's terrible. I think it, you know it, it won't offend people by its terrible awful quality. It won't cause people to vomit when they see it on the page. So, you know, to that extent, someone might find some enjoyment in it somewhere. So, I'll, if if it doesn't get picked up by a publisher, I'll go 
publish it myself somehow, somewhere. Gotcha. As for what it's about, um, it started as an accident because my dad got me a typewriter, an old 1960s one for my birthday in 2020. And I thought one night, quite a lot of whiskey, and I just want to see if this works. So I started, wrote a sentence, and then six months later, 550 pages later, it rounded off. And because um, it was an accident, it was not something I would ever have sat down beforehand and said, I want to write this. Um, but it's, it's this weird sort of mix of it's slightly adventurous, slightly sci-fi-ish, slightly post-apocalyptic, um, quite comic in places as well. It's supposed to be fairly lighthearted. Um, and it's a bit like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy meets Treasure Island. So it, it's Treasure Island in its sort of basic plot structure. There, there is a MacGuffin at the end, which they're trying to find and get to. Hitchhiker's Guide and the, the type of observation about the world, which is all collapsed. Um, and the world is, is the most, I think, enjoyable thing about it, because it's, it's set after a mysterious war in, in what has wiped out most of the civilized world. And we're 800 odd years in the future, and people are living in the ruins of the old great cities of, of, of Earth. And I thought, if I were in that situation, I found, like, an archaeologist, as an archaeologist, and I dug up an iPhone, what would I think that this is, not knowing that it is a phone, not knowing what a phone is, what would I think it would be used for? And just doing this with almost any kind of run-of-the-mill object you can find. And it, I found that, that that really helped build the world. It was enjoyable to do for the most part, but it helped build the world out. But the basic plot line is, is similar to Treasure Island. There's a thing, they need to go and get the thing. Um, they are waylaid by baddies who betray them. And it sort of leaves on a cliffhanger because the, the idea is to expand this into something like a series, which is another reason I hope it gets, gets published. Then, then it will really be worth my time. But uh, until then, yeah, I think we can all semi to, uh, You know, getting a little drunk and just belting out an entire novel. <laughs> all been I was only drunk for half of it. Only the half of it. All right. <laughs> but it, it's what, sort of do you have a title? Yeah, how will we look for it when it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the title is "Violent Delights," which I've nicked from Shakespeare because. With this accent and being British, I have to be a little bit pretentious at times. Um, and as for how you look for it, I don't know yet because it's not—it's literally nowhere apart from on paper. So um, I might have to get back in touch as soon as it goes up anywhere else. I will get back in touch and let you know. But uh, if you Sounds do ever good. one day in years in the future see a book called Violent Delights, there's about a ten percent chance it might be mine. So who knows? <laughs> Uh, it does vaguely sound like I might see it in the uh, the adult or romance section. It kind of does. Bookstore. Kind of. Um, is there any romance in it? There's a, there's an aborted romance in it, um, but it doesn't end well because yeah, it, it's it's hard, sort of hard to explain. But um, it, yeah, the, the romance bit doesn't end well. It was also it was partly an attempt to be slightly self-referential and slightly tongue-in-cheek, but also it was. It evolved into something like a response to the way in which a lot of films and a lot of books go these days, which is that everyone is so obsessed with being serious. They think they have really serious things to say. All stories are their stories. Everything is very, very personal. Is that your personal experience actually matters to anyone else, and as though you actually are interesting enough to make it relatable. Most people, most modern authors, are not this good. They, they don't tell their, their stories; just aren't that interesting. And I thought, okay. I, if I tried to start out and write something that serious, I would never get anywhere because I, I would always be looking at fantastic works of fiction and comparing myself to those and thinking, there's no way I can emulate that, so why do I bother? So with this one, I thought, rather than subverting expectations, rather than you know, do, doing the unexpected, or aiming just for the unexpected, rather than doing a Last Jedi, for instance, with Star Wars, I'm going to try and reaffirm some of the things that make 
basic story is good? What are the things that are universal about all the books everyone reads as a kid um, that make them so enjoyable, so memorable? What are the plot devices? What are the characters like? What are the developments? And you tend to find that there, there are a number of these similarities. And if you evoke these rather than trying to undermine them, there's a much better chance that people will actually enjoy reading the thing that you are that you're trying to make them read. So it, it was also a, a slightly countercultural response, if I were really digging myself up at all. So the gotcha. way I always like to describe stuff like that is uh, cliches are cliche for a reason, because they're good and people like them, or because they're accurate. They are. There's I some mean, grain of truth behind them. Definitely. I think you should always add something. I, I don't, I mean, I, I, Martin Amis is one of my favorite writers growing up, published a book called The War Against Cliche, which I very much took on board. So in speech, in writing, in, in the words that you use, I don't think, and George Orwell was good on this as well, never use a phrase if you're used to seeing it in print. Always try and find a different way of saying the same thing. Um, so, so you can avoid cliche while still making use of cliche. You can, you can find what makes the thing common and find new ways of exploring it or, or innovative ways of developing it. So it's not just um, a Kingsley and his Martin Amos' dad once said, once he got to late in life, he would never again read a book that didn't begin with the words, a shot rang out. Well, okay, that's because that's he, he was bored by that point. Um, but you can do things with the same idea. You can begin a book with a gunshot. You don't use the words, a shot rang out. Or you, you do something a little bit more innovative with the idea. Um, so yeah, find, find the cliches. They do exist, as you say, for a reason. But find new ways of deploying them. And definitely do not use the words that other people have used to put them. Great minds think alike, but fools seldom differ. Exactly. That, 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 yeah, that, that, yeah, that works. One last Great question. Great minds think alike, but fools seldom differ. <laughs> yeah. Oh, screw off. <laughs> <laughs> one last question that I do have is, what is one insight that you feel like someone should know if they're interested in going into either journalism or writing? Um, the two most important words in the English language, uh, one of them rhymes with duck and the other one is off. Um, or duck and it, even. Um, if you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, um, you are never really, you're, ne you're always going to be putting yourself off taking any kind of risk. If you always look at the best that anyone around you has produced and you are anything other than a psychopath, you will think there's no way I can emulate this. So why, why, why should I try? Um, the most important word is to say duck that. Um, and do it anyway. Stop comparing yourself to the best. If you if you enjoy doing it and you think you can do it reasonably well and you have a basic desire to improve, then do it and see what happens. And if it turns out it's complete crap, then you can always burn it ritually. But if it's not, then it might not be. And if you don't do it, you will never know. So if you're always suffering under a weight of expectation, do away with as much of that expectation as you can. Focus on the thing you're saying, what you have to say. Is it meaningful? Are you telling the truth? Are you saying it well? Is it the best that you can do? That's all you need. And then go for it. And if you can get paid to do it, even better. Don't Which be is why I hold down a separate job besides <laughs> writing. But... That makes sense. Um, but don't anything... check your morals at the door. So I'm... <laughs> oh, um... yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, I, I did actually once offer to fillet someone for a job, but um, that, that, was, know, that was a, a very low moment. <laughs> a job job. <laughs> Um, that, was a semi, that was semi-joking. I just wanted to work there. 
I said I'd get down on my knees and I would be willing to prove it. Um, but, you know, didn't get the job, surprisingly. Uh, he was joking um, unless they somehow took it serious. It's yeah. a joke until a $20 bill shows up. So. All right. Is there it's anything else you guys want to touch on before we wrap things up? I'd like to get a little less things touched on, actually. <laughs> I think right. that was their response as well. Well, if you guys enjoyed, make sure to hit that like button, subscribe for more videos in the future, and we will see you all in the next one. Bye!